Uh, Jane Caro is an Australian novelist, a, a social commentator, an award-winning advertising writer, and in her own words, a feminist, atheist, media tart, wife, mother and stirrer. Uh, she's a regular panellist on the Gruen Transfer and Gruen Planet and is the co-author of books such as The F Word, How We Learn to Swear by Feminism, The Stupid Country, How Australia is Dismantling Public Education, one of her great passions, and For God's Sake, an atheist, Christian, Jew and Muslim debate religion. Uh, you should also know that uh, Jane is a beef producer and a timber grower and really keen on karaoke. Apparently she sings along wherever she goes in the car. Uh, with a big round of applause, would you please welcome Jane Caro. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be asked to talk at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas about my dangerous ideas because obviously just by looking at me you can see how incredibly dangerous and threatening I just naturally am. You know, because there is nothing really more dangerous and threatening than someone who looks like a nice middle-aged North Shore housewife. I, I live on the North Shore. I did used to do some housework. I gave it up. Um, but I still look like that, and that's very powerful. One of my first ideas about being a bit of a revolutionary and a stirrer is don't dress like one. <laughs> it scares the shit out of them. So I've just done a bit of a brain dump, okay? I've just sort of gone, what do I think of the world? and. What do I care about? What are my ideas? What are my beliefs? What are my passions? And they're in no particular order of dangerousness except the first few because to my great sadness, I think that the most dangerous idea I hold in today's Australia is an uncompromising belief in the primacy of public education. I believe <laughs> I believe that public education and democracy are indivisible. They go hand in hand. As you weaken public education, you weaken democracy. Because the purpose of public education, alongside the idea of educating workers and people to contribute and all that kind of thing, is the idea of educating your citizens. Because when you give every citizen, one citizen, one vote, you need to educate your voters. So that is why it's so important. Any tin pot dictatorship can create a highly educated elite. In fact, they do. Look at North Korea. It's got a highly educated elite. What they were educated in is a slightly different story, but nevertheless, look at any ghastly place on earth. There's a highly educated elite. That's easy. What's hard to do is a well-educated general population. That's what marks out a civil society and indeed a democracy. I do not believe that fee-charging schools that can select who they will and won't educate and where they will open schools and what communities they service should receive public subsidy. There, I've said it. <laughs> this, apparently, in today's Australia, makes me a Marxist. <laughs> I actually go further than that. I believe Australians are as blind 
to what we are doing and the dangers of government-funded private schools and what it does to the educational opportunities of the children of the disadvantaged and thereby the damage it does to our long-term competitiveness because talent doesn't just pop up in nice middle-class families, in nice middle-class suburbs. Talent pops up all over the place and we're less equitably educating it than most other countries. I believe at the moment we're somewhere around the third lowest funders of public education in the OECD. That's pretty bad. I think we're as blind to the damaging effects, long-term effects of this on our society as Americans are to the lack of sensible gun control and the damage that is doing to their own safety. We can't see it. We're blind to it. I believe public education should be universal, compulsory and secular. Chaplains have no place in our public schools. Now, this does not mean that people of faith have no place in our public schools. Many, many teachers, principals, families of faith have strong ties and are very heavily involved in our public education system. And that is absolutely fine. Secular does not mean excluding religion. It means not of religion. It means the things of the world. And that's what our education system, our public education system should be doing. The teaching of faith should happen at home and at Sunday school and in churches, not in secular public schools. That is not the right place for it to happen. I believe also that private schools should... You know, you'll be surprised by this. This is a dangerous way of putting this, but I'm going to risk it. I believe that private schools should continue to have an exemption from the Anti-Discrimination Act, which they currently have. But what they have is a floating exemption, so they don't have to nominate on what grounds they will discriminate on. They can kind of decide to discriminate or not to discriminate on whatever grounds they suddenly decide they need to discriminate on. And I think that that is outrageous. But I think, fair enough, let them discriminate, particularly if they don't get public funding anymore. But they should have to, dis they should have a nominate the grounds on which they discriminate. So they should have to say, we discriminate against people because of sexual orientation or marital status or not believing in speaking in tongues which ought to be a recommendation not to send your child there. Um, and I think they should publish them pro prominently, be compelled to publish We Discriminate on the Basis of Sexual Orientation in their prospectus, school prospectus, to potential purchasers, parents, and in all job ads. It is outrageous that they can put a job ad out, out there and then decide when somebody's gone to all the effort of applying and got their hopes up and thought they might be able to get a job in this place that they never had a chance because they were gay or had divorced and remarried or didn't believe in the speaking of tongues, which I hope is just about every teacher in Australia. <laughs> Here are my ideas on how to fix our education system. Fund according to need. No, bugger that. Fund according to need in the public system. Don't fund the private schools at all. Support, encourage and respect teachers. Pay them properly. Ask them how we could improve the education system. Nobody does. Quite extraordinary 
There they are in the classroom, seeing what's going on day after day. But are they ever asked? No. Apparently, Christopher Pine knows much better. <laughs> Remove standardised testing. Stop making our children anxious, terrified, and therefore risk-averse in the classroom. We know, Passy Salberg has said, that true learning only takes place in a completely free fear environment. People cannot learn properly if they're afraid. We are making our children very afraid, and our parents are so anxious, they make me sick. Wish they'd all just lighten up and stop it. If we must give public money to private schools, and if I was boss of the wash, it wouldn't be happening, but as it's highly unlikely I'll ever be boss of the wash, um, it's probably going to continue. Um, we should not give a dollar of public money to fee-charging schools until public schools are as good as any schools in the world. I think we should make schools, welfare and community hubs in disadvantaged areas. We should bring the prenatal clinic into the um, primary school in disadvantaged areas. We should bring the GP in. We should bring the mental health uh, services. We should bring the baby health clinic. We should have a cafe for mothers to meet one another um, when they drop their older children off to school so that we get in and work with mothers and parents early on because we know that if you put some money and some time and some effort and some energy into early childhood, you stop a myriad of problems that by the time they get to year nine, it's too late to do anything about. That, sadly... I mean, does any of that sound particularly dangerous? I mean, I suppose if you sent your kid to a private school, you might be a bit pissed off, but... <laughs> um, it's what most of the rest of the world does, not all of it, but most of the rest of the world doesn't give public money to feed charging schools, something Christopher Pine forgot when he decided to make Australian parents pay for university outrageously huge amounts of money, as well as 34% of families already pay school fees, which I think might just be going to blow up in his face. And, oh, that's such a pity, isn't it? <laughs> Here's another dangerous idea. I believe in quotas for women in senior management and on boards. I believe in quotas for women on all decision-making uh, panels and uh, positions and tables where people make decisions. Change will only happen when it gets too uncomfortable for people to stay the same. And as long as women are going, oh, oh, guys, guys, can we have some of what you got? We're not fucking going to get it. <laughs> We desperately need more women on decision-making tables, not because women are any smarter, better, more nurturing. Jeez, I hate that. <laughs> that's just another sexist burden to lie, lay on women. You know, that's what happened to poor old Julia Gillard. She gets in to be Prime Minister and women are only allowed to have two positions. They're either unbelievably fantastic and inspiration to the entire world, or they're completely hopeless, never should have got the job in the first place, and useless, hopeless bitch. Those are the two positions women are allowed to hold in the public square. Funnily enough, they're neither of those stupid things. They're just ordinary people like everybody else who are good at some things and not so good at others. Julia Gillard was a perfectly reasonable Prime Minister. She was hopeless at communicating. Drove me nuts watching her do that. But 
She was excellent at getting legislation through. She had her strengths, she had her weaknesses. But go around now, she's busily being deified by some people, St Julia's reappearing, and still being completely demonised by a whole group of other people. Poor bloody Julia Gillard. She's just a person who got to be Prime Minister. We've got to stop having these stupid attitudes about women that mean we are either everybody's hero or everybody's hate object. We need women in positions of power making decisions because otherwise women's perspective gets left out. In fact, I suspect had there been two or three or four more women in Cabinet, Christopher Pine may not have done his university reforms in quite that way because they might have been able to go, um, Chris, can you shut up a second? Just a second. Shut up, Chris. Shut up, Chris! <laughs> oh, thank God. Um, if you do that with a compounding interest rate, you're going to ask girls to pay more for degrees that are actually worth less to them. Can I explain why that is? Because they already earn less money than the guys with the same degree, even though they did better at uni. And um, when they have kids and take time out, well, the interest rate will keep compounding. And then when they go back as part-time workers, it'll keep compounding. So the guy who does dentistry, who's in the minority, um, the guy who does dentistry will maybe pay 70 grand for his degree, but the girl who does dentistry will pay 100,000, so probably it's not a good idea. And you might get in trouble for doing it. There might have been a chance that somebody had actually said that. But with one woman, who after all is the foreign minister, notice how everybody's saying she's fab. Um, foreign ministers are always fab. They're never here. And I think that's the thing about our cabinet. They don't even really have one woman on it because she's never there. So we need quotas. And when people say, oh, quotas... That's discriminatory and it's not on merit. Sorry, let's go back to the Cabinet for a minute. How do they choose the people in Cabinet? Oh, they have to have X numbers of nationals. Do you think Barnaby Joyce is upset because he's only there because he's a part of a quota? Does he feel patronised? <laughs> Mind you, I think the nationals always feel patronised, really, don't they? Um, and, you know, they have to have... X from WA and SA and all that sort of thing. Think of lots of boards. Interstate representatives are commonly, you know, you have to have them. Staff representatives sometimes on boards. Do they all feel that they haven't been chosen on merit? And if we're talking about quotas, what about that pesky 100% one that operated for blokes for about 2,000 years? <laughs> Remember that one? Do you think they felt they weren't getting there on merit? <laughs> Who cares how they felt they weren't getting there on merit? So I can't see why the only group in society that have to prove their merit to get ahead are women. No one else does, so why should we? The trouble is there's a tremendously sexist assumption in the world, and I believe it really poisons an awful lot of things. I believe that our society thinks that men have merit until they prove otherwise, and it thinks that women don't have merit until they prove otherwise. I think we think the same thing about public schools. We believe private schools have merit until they prove otherwise. We believe public schools don't have merit until they prove otherwise. Just let you into a little secret. Maybe the other way around. No, I don't think so. So my point is, I think meritocracy is a nice idea, but I don't see any evidence that we have one yet. We should be working towards it. 
I do not believe women need to make a business case or any other kind of case before they have the right to fully participate in every part of public life. Women's rights are human rights. We do not have to prove our worth to be given our rights. Indeed, as my mother has always told me, we will only have true equality when there are as many mediocre women in positions of power as there are mediocre men. <laughs> I believe men and women, and this is very unpopular, but I believe it, I believe men and women are much more similar than they are different. Yes, I know there are differences, please. But I think the differences within the sexes are as great as the differences between the sexes. Human beings are human beings. We are, in fact, all of us, much more similar than we are different, yet we seem to love driving the differences. I can give you a really simple experiment to prove my case. Go to a cinema. I know hardly anyone does anymore, but it's quite pleasant when you do. A friend of mine has just come back into my head. I'm going to just throw it out there. A friend of mine once said this brilliant thing. Not sure her husband thought it was brilliant, but the rest of us did. She said, you know, married sex is like going to the cinema. You don't really want to go, but when you get there, you have quite a nice time. <laughs> So I recommend you go to the cinema. <laughs> and do this little test. Go to the cinema for a comedy, a laugh-out-loud hysterical comedy. In fact, we're doing the experiment right here and now. When something funny happens on screen, notice how everybody laughs. Do they laugh according to gender? Do they laugh according to demographic or age or psychographic or segmentation or race or ethnic background or anything like that or class? Nah. They all laugh spontaneously at the same time. Gosh, what's going on? <laughs> it's because we're much more similar than we're different. I want us to start emphasising our similarities rather than our differences. I am not interested in other people's sex lives. If anyone starts to tell me about their sex life, I shut them down fast. <laughs> It's nearly as bad as them tell me, telling me about their dreams. <laughs> oh, that's bad. And sexy dreams is like the combination of all the worst things you could possibly imagine. I don't care what people do. I don't understand the obsession some people have with wanting to know what other people do to get themselves aroused and then what they do when they are aroused. As long as it's with consenting adults, I couldn't care less. Do what you like. I believe women have a right to control their own bodies and their own wombs. Anything else is to colonise a woman's body and is a form of slavery. It is no one else's business what a woman decides to do with her body or what she decides to wear. It is amazing how much people want to interfere with what women do with their bodies, what they wear, how they look, who they sleep with or don't sleep with, um, what they do when they reproduce. We seem to be unable to get our noses out. I have a simple solution and a dangerous idea. 
It's their business. Butt out and leave them to it. Women are fully capable of making their own decisions and taking the responsibility for the consequences of those decisions, both good and bad. Whenever someone tells me they want to protect women, I hear control women. Indeed, I believe that all religions, yes, all, I'm ecumenical, I don't like any of them. <laughs> I believe that all religions were invented primarily as a control mechanism, particularly of women and reproduction. That is what they are for. I believe there are no gods and that what happens after life is pretty much the same as what happened before life. And I don't remember hating that. <laughs> I mean, yes, did I miss out? Yes, on most of recorded history I missed out, most of which was probably a good thing to miss out on. Um, but it wasn't, was, what's so terrible about the idea that we would go back to where we came from, oblivion? I'm afraid, here's another dangerous idea, that I think religion is terribly narcissistic. Somehow we have to be special. We have to be the sort of ideal of creation, to be plucked from all the others and given eternal life. I can't imagine anything worse than heaven. Can you? Think who'd be in it. How boring would that be? There's that World Congress of Families happening at the moment. They think they're all going to be there. Jesus, save me from that. Oh, I'd much rather go to hell. Think how much more interesting hell would be and the company would be so much better. I not only believe that women should choose when and if they are ready to parent. Somebody asked me once on telly, it was Joe Hildebrand, he said, but Jane, where should we draw the line? I said, we shouldn't draw any line. Women and their doctors and their partners get to decide. It's not our business. It's just not our business. But I also believe that all people should have the right to access voluntary euthanasia if they so wish. If those with faith would never do either, that is entirely their right. But they do not have the right to stop others choosing differently from them, particularly with voluntary euthanasia. It is fine, it may even be admirable for someone to freely choose to suffer till the very end. But it is outrageous for them to then decide that they have a right to impose that suffering on someone else. That to me is extraordinary. I remember watching Q&A and they brought up voluntary euthanasia and there was a taped question of a young woman who was suffering with a disease which made her vomit her own faeces. Can you imagine? And she was begging them about voluntary euthanasia. They all tried to duck the question furiously and one politician who will remain nameless, I will never forget them saying this, said, oh, the whole discussion of euthanasia makes me feel queasy. I was screaming at the television, how do you think you'd feel if you were vomiting your own faeces? I couldn't believe the lack of empathy and also the assumption that they will never be in that position. Any and all of us could be in that position. I want the right to choose. I demand the right to choose. It is my right. I believe as scientists, when it comes to climate change, vaccination, 
Medicine in general. I don't go to naturopaths, sorry. Um, fluoride in the water? Fab. I hate the dentist. Um, and yes, even on GM foods, I go the whole hog. I'm consistent. If I'm going to believe the scientific Western scientific methods, the best we've come up with so far, I don't pick and choose. I will go with the peer-reviewed evidence every goddamn time. I think we need to lighten up, particularly about our children. They'll be fine. <laughs> they won't be perfect. They won't set the world on fire. Sometimes they'll drive you crazy. Mostly they'll drive you crazy. <laughs> but they'll be fine. Leave them alone. Stop crawling all over them. I, I, my husband and I go for a walk every morning along a cycleway. There's no roads. It's completely safe apart from, from the kamikaze cyclists who are just terrified. But nevertheless, it's pretty safe. We never see children playing without adults, ever. When I was a kid in the 60s, we had remnant bushland opposite us. I, we used to disappear in the morning, go off and play all day. Nobody knew where we were. No one cared where we were. They were very glad we weren't with them. <laughs> Please, can we go back to that? I think it's a whole lot healthier. I'd like to see everyone... Oh, and this is a dangerous idea. This is possibly the most dangerous idea I've ever had. I would like to see everyone work 30% less hard. I know, forget the continuous goddamn improvement. What a babyish idea that is. What in life continuously improves? Look at yourselves, people, are you continuously improving? <laughs> I don't think so. Nothing continuously improves. Let's all relax a bit more, have a bit more fun. Imagine, think, feel safer. We're never safe. Safety is an illusion, danger is reality, but who cares? We need safety, it's the, the illusion of safety, it's necessary. We are allowed to let ourselves feel safe. We don't have to feel afraid all the time. We have never been richer, ever. But what's the point of it? Is anyone enjoying it? Is it making anything any easier for anybody? No, it's making us more anxious, we're working harder, we're fussing over our children in sort of as an excuse for not really looking after them. It's, and, and, and it's all about this got to accumulate and be richer and work harder. And if you don't work every second God sends, then you will get fired and then you'll be on the scrap heap and a failure and life will be over as you know it and you'll lose your membership of the middle class and you'll have to move from the North Shore and oh God, the shame. <laughs> but if we all worked 30% less hard, we goofed off more everybody would be a lot happier. The same people would do well. The same children would come top. They'd just have more fun on the way. Honestly, I think it's a good idea. Let's make a pact right here and now. Tomorrow, 30% less hard. Oh, it's Sunday, that's cheating. <laughs> I think we are watching the wholesale transfer of power from the information providers, who are the privileged by and large, to information consumers. This is terrifying the powerful and nothing gives me more pleasure than to see them thrashing about looking desperate. 
And they are. But of course, the powerful thrashing about and looking desperate are very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Indeed, I used to think that most of the policies that I could see were bloody stupid or discriminatory or, you know, um, widening the gap between the haves and the have-nots. I used to think, oh, well, it's because our politicians are just not very bright. I used to give them the excuse of being stupid. But now I've decided that I can no longer do that and I think it is actually deliberate. And I think the university reforms, which will have the effect if they go through as in their current form, we don't know whether that will happen yet or not, they will have the effect of discouraging young women, particularly young women from less advantaged backgrounds, from going to university. Of course they will. Maybe it wasn't the lack of women in the cabinet room. Maybe that's one of the things the powerful and the privileged want. They want us to return to the past, where white men, particularly older white men, were in charge and everyone else ran around and was kind of their support staff, particularly women. And uh, I think maybe they, they like that idea. I was actually on the drum not that long ago with a writer from The Australian who will also remain nameless. Oh, Adam Crichton was his name. Um, <laughs> and he basically said, oh, I think it's quite a good idea if one parent stays home and looks after the children. He meant mothers. He didn't for an instant mean fathers, but the good thing about feminism is you can no longer say that without being lynched metaphorically, and sometimes I think it'd be good if we lynched them actually, but you know, that would be really dangerous. Feminism matters because as women gain a voice and some power, then the things women care about gain advocates, powerful advocates. Like, for example, children. I believe that the worldwide revelations of systematic child abuse by men, particularly powerful men in institutions, um, which has been ignored, minimised and covered up, not just recently, but for millennia, and now is seeing the light of day and being exposed, is a direct result of feminism and the corresponding rise in the status of women because they have called attention to it. I do seriously enjoy also watching ICAC, <laughs> where the commish is Judge Megan Latham, the investigative journalist is Kate McClymont, and it was particularly delightful when Kerry Schott was being uh, revealed as someone with integrity, Joni Mackay also. It interests me that women as outsiders are less likely, not, there are some obviously, but they're less likely to be corrupted because the blokes simply don't think of offering them a bribe. They don't think they're important <laughs> enough. One of those upside down benefits really, isn't it? <laughs> But I think feminism is having a powerful effect on seeing what was unseen, what was covered up. And I think that's really, really important and one of the reasons it's so necessary, not just for women, but actually for the whole world. I've thought that for probably 2,000 years, we've looked at the world through one eye. It's a perfectly good and valid eye. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's a male eye. And very, very slowly, we're starting to open our other eye, our female eye. That's all of us. And we're going to start to see the world perhaps for the first time through 2020 vision. Problem, of course, climate change means we'd better bloody well hurry up. I think social media is changing the world. 
I think it is incredibly important. I think it is incredibly powerful. I really enjoy it. I have so much fun on it. I fight. I argue sometimes. I say things I shouldn't, usually when I've had too much wine. Don't tweet and drink, people. <laughs> I do, and it's a bad idea. Um, but I think it's really important, and I think it's really important for reasons like we see the women in India demonstrating in the streets about the rapes in that community, in that society. Those rapes aren't new. They've been going on for thousands of years. But when a woman spoke up about it in her family and said, oh, I think that's... They said to her, oh, yeah, but it's not our business. Don't do anything. You know, oh, it's an exaggeration. They just... It was shut down. Not maliciously. It was just not seen as a priority. Now women are going on social media because all the women in India... Everybody in India has a smartphone, even if they are living on the street. They go on their device and they say, I think it's terrible. And then they get a whole lot of other women going, I think it's terrible too. And before long, they're on the streets holding the police and the powers that be to account. That is revolutionary. It is powerful. It matters. And it's one of the reasons that the previous gatekeepers and the powerful class are thrashing about desperately and trying to close everything down and send it back to the 50s. After Barack Obama won the, his second presidential election, he won primarily on the votes of women. Yes, Latinos and black voters, of course. He won almost all of the Latino and the black vote. But Latinos are about... I think, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I think they're about 10 or 15% of the population and black Americans, 7%. Women are 52% of the population. You win the woman's vote, plus the black Americans and the Latinos, you win the presidency. There were articles on the internet, I kid you not, from people in America, that great bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, saying that perhaps they should reconsider giving women the vote. <laughs> I kid you not. Even better, according to Julia Baird in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning, 12% more US women now identify as feminists than did in 2006. That's the biggest spike in identifying as a feminist that anyone can remember. It means that, uh, she said in her article, about two-thirds of those women now do. That's an extraordinary change. Do you remember the last, um, our last federal election? Of course you do, who could forget? Um, <laughs> You remember when Margie Abbott and the girls had to walk Tony around and <laughs> there he was on the, you know, morning TV shows, outing himself as a feminist. <laughs> Isn't that marvellous? Well, I actually thought it was marvellous. Lots of people criticised it. I'm not saying whether he is or he isn't a feminist. I, I don't personally care. Um, what I thought was marvellous was that to actually have a chance of winning the election, he felt he had to say he was. That is revolutionary. That is dangerous. And God, I loved it. I liked seeing how the word choked in the back of his throat before he spat it out. <laughs> but I also want to say, I want to forget about left and right. I even want to forget a bit about progressive and conservative. I think, and it was Stephen Law, a philosopher from the London School of Economics that first said this, that really started me thinking. I actually think what we're watching across the whole of the world, not just the Western world, but the whole of the world, is a worldwide confrontation between the authoritarians who want to tell you 
who to worship, how to live, what to wear, what to think, who you can marry, what kind of life expectancy you might have, what you can do. And there are degrees of authoritarians from the Islamic State um, all the way to what might seem a mild form of authoritarianism, but nevertheless is there. Perhaps Kevin Donnelly and the Curriculum Review might be another form of authoritarianism. And so we've got the authoritarians on one side and the liberals. And by the liberals, I mean the small L liberals, the American meaning of the word perhaps, who would rather teach you how to think rather than what to think and then leave it up to you. I leave it up to you to guess which side of that uh, particularly battle I might be on. Oh, okay. <coughs> that means I have two minutes before you get to, I get to answer your questions, which is my favourite bit. I want to use a birth analogy about where we are in the world today. I think we're in transition. How many here have given birth vaginally? Quite a few, excellent, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. For the others, allow me to explain. Transition is when you move from um, first stage labour into second stage labour. So it's the crowning of the baby's head, your cervix is 10 centimetres dilated. I know, I love that we can talk about this shit now. It's really great. Um, Your cervix is 10 centimetres dilated, but the rhythm of labour has changed. And it feels really chaotic. And that's the point at which a lot of labours go wrong because the woman starts to panic. Adrenaline kicks in, shuts down the labour. It can all go horribly wrong at that point. Transition. And it's because you know what you're left. And let me tell you, what you're leaving isn't very pleasant. Labour is actually understated. Call it labour. It's incredibly painful. I had drugs. They were excellent. Um, So... You're going from that, which was very unpleasant, but you kind of understood it, and you're going to something you don't understand. So you're going from one world into another world, and that's where we're at. And transition is always when people panic. And I think as a whole world, we're in transition. I believe that the Liberals will win in the end. They always do. But I think things may still get a lot worse before they get better. And as I said before, climate change may force us to accelerate this process of fighting the authoritarians. I also believe very strongly, one final thing, I believe that self-righteousness is destroying the world. I cannot bear, and it comes from left and right and everything in between, the pomposity of those who want to shut down anything they see as being, um, what's it called, offensive. Holy shit. The worst thing that happens to you in your life is you get offended by something somebody says. You're living a bloody good life. So stop fucking going on about it. I really couldn't care less if you're offended by something I said because when I offend you, it means I disturb the way you think about the world. Well, that's my job. Thank you very much. Well, folks, I think there's probably another 18 dangerous ideas just sitting there which might try to draw out. There are two microphones in the room. There's one just down there which has been illuminated and one up there. And I'd ask if anybody wants to come and 
ask a question of Jane, or you may even want to have a, make a, a brief comment, I'll allow, allow the odd one, but mainly questions. Do you want to come down to the microphone now and, and, and put, put a question or make a little comment? Don't be afraid. Oh, good. So we've got about 20 minutes to do this. And if you just say your name, please, and then away we go. Sure. Oh, hello, I'm Sarah. And let's see, I grew up in a family of politics, mostly, um, well, actually totally socialist. But um, I'm in this kind of quandary. I'm kind of like, who do I vote for? <laughs> so I thought I'd ask you. <laughs> Righto, Jane. Okay. Well, here's how I do it. Um, I'm really strange. I look at the policies. I know. <laughs> I don't know where I got that idea from. And I think about whoever it is whose policies I agree with more of them. And so for the last quite a while now, I've been voting green. Because people, people go on about them as the fairies at the bottom of the garden. But I read their policies and I go, supporting public education, worried about the climate, one onshore processing, tick, 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 tick. That's all what I... So I, I do that. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd suggest you do the same. If you like the Liberal Party policies, well, that's a shame, but over to you. <laughs> yeah. That's um, great. Thank you. <laughs> I should encourage any men in the room who'd like to come down too. Oh, yeah, uh, please. Um, <laughs> Don't, don't feel you're not allowed to speak. Jane was very interested to see that a few were here, actually. Yes, so, I uh, uh, Yes, next, please. I know I often need the microphone a bit lower. Um, <laughs> Same problem. <laughs> um, I also identify as a feminist, being a young female. But one thing I've noticed is that females are increasingly becoming their own worst enemy in that respect. Do you happen to agree with that statement at all? No. Um, in fact, I, I, I always get asked and I'm always asked, don't you think women are their own worst enemy? I don't. It isn't women that are stopping women getting equal pay. It isn't women that are keeping women out of decision-making um, positions. It, it isn't women who are standing in women's own way. Women are doing the best they can. Now, one of the really interesting things is, and I recommend you read Sheryl Sandberg's book, lean in. Not all of it I agree with, but there's a lot that's very good in there. And what she talks about particularly is a, an experiment called the Heidi and Howard experiment, where they give, they gave, and it's been replicated heaps of times, they gave a um, whole lot of uh, males and females identical CVs. The only yeah. thing they did was they changed the gender of the names. So some of them were Heidi's CVs and some of them were the Howard's. And they asked them just to rate the CVs on skills, and likability. Howard, the higher the men and women rated Howard on skills, the higher they rated him on likability. Heidi, the higher they rated her on skills, the lower they rated her on likability. So women have to make a decision, and they, we all make this decision. Will I push myself ahead and have people not like me, which is what will happen, or will I stay where I am, which is quite a nice job, and keep people feeling positively about me? Until all of us, and this isn't women and men, gender-based, this is, because sexism, somebody said, it's like asbestos. It's in the air we breathe. We all breathe it, breathe it in. Sexism isn't something men do to women exclusively. It's something women do to women, and worst of all, to ourselves. 
We do it to ourselves. And the women are their own worst enemy is in fact an example of us doing it to ourselves. I think that was a perspective I was more coming from um, in that women are often the first to tear each other down before a male look, does. The, 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 the group out of power will always tear themselves apart because it's easier. It's very hard to tear the powerful apart. Well, that's not just women. I mean, you look at where, when race riots and other things take mm. place in American cities, it's always African-Americans destroying their own suburbs as yeah. well, tearing it's themselves apart. On, the, on those survey, uh, those, those experiments, mm. the other one that's very telling is that they give two CVs, um, one with a man's name on it and one with a woman's name on it, and then they ask the selection panel to say who they've chosen and why. Uh, one of the CVs is heavy on experience and the other one's on academic uh, performance and then they swap them and the selection panel says when they're choosing the man with the experience one, oh experience is the most important thing but then when it's changed and it's the gender's changed they say no the, in other words whatever it is they adjust the, the academic criteria. Qualific they justify yeah. find and a rationalisation time and time again yeah. thank you we might move on to the next person there's also a microphone up there for anybody who wants to venture into the heights Marie, I just have a query. Come a little on, closer, Marie, please. Yeah, you spoke about how men and women are more similar than we are different. I wondered from your advertising background what you thought about uh, the drive of marketers to drive products towards men and towards women that are exactly the same, like razors or shaving foam or something like that, and what effect that's going to have on our children in the future. Well, it'll probably be a little less hairy. Um, <laughs> I think, I think it's their way of expanding the market. What advertising does is it really follows what we really, in our guts, actually think about the world. It doesn't take our rationalisations, our ideal selves, or our political philosophy and go with that. It goes with what actually sells. And you see, my idea that men and women are not really all that different from one another in essence is an unpopular idea. Even amongst a lot of women who would call themselves feminists, there's a sort of view that women are just intrinsically nicer, which I just think is another stick to beat ourselves with, frankly. And also, I know just how not nice I am. Um, <laughs> so, I, 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 marketers are just playing on that idea that to use your husband's razor, it won't fit your delicately shaped underarm pits in quite the same way as his chin. Well, there may be some truth in that, but I don't know. Chins, underarm pits, they just look a bit reversed from one another, really, don't they? It, they're just following our own stupidity and making money out of it. That's what advertisers do. Do you think that's going to affect our children, though, in the future and driving that wedge between the differences between men and women? It reinforces. What, what, uh, advertising doesn't change the world, and that's good, because we don't want advertising people leading our uh, moral universe. We really don't. Um, it doesn't... They don't change the world. What they do is they reflect it, and by doing that, they reinforce it. So it is inherently a conservative force. It tends to keep things as they are. Um, and that is a problem, and it's always been a problem. I don't know that it's getting worse. I actually think, again, the social media thing is actually changing that for the better because now people can... You don't have to watch ads if you don't want to. It's really easy not to. And the, let me tell you, the advertising industry is in a complete goddamn flop sweat about it. Um, and so what they're now doing more and more of is they're realising that they have to create ads that people actually want to watch. So that... You, and you'll get them on your Facebook page. People will send it around because it's funny or it's relevant or it's moving or it's whatever it is. That's a good thing. I think possibly advertising might actually get better rather than worse. Not sure about anything else. 
Mm -hmm. So that's the best hope I can give you. Anybody up there that's near the microphone? No? Uh, are you lurking there in the background, bravely coming forward? Yeah! Don't congratulate him! He is not brave. He's just a human being asking a question of another human being. Jesus, I hate that when you congratulate him. Just ask the question. Hi, Jane, how are you? I'm um, good. Now, what? do you think you just continue after that little tirade? <laughs> Please do. It's not aimed at you, it's only them. Um, my name's Jordan. I'm a young gay male, and I haven't decided whether I'd like to get married or not, but I'd kind of like the option, I guess. Um, but my concern is that once, like, gay marriage inevitably happens, society will sort of just, like, dust its hands of, like, the LGBTIQ issue because, like, well, they've got marriage now. Um, is, are you concerned that maybe there could be, like, a similar problem for feminism, that once we have, like, a big visible sort of gesture, like parliamentary quotas, for instance, that the ruling elite you spoke about will just sort of, like, oh, well, job well done, let's move on? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. That's the tactic that's always used. The term post-feminist was first used in 1911. <laughs> that's before we got the vote most places. Uh, and, and every time there's something major that changes, there's the, like this attitude which is, have you got enough now, girls? Can we shut up now about it? There always is. And it's the same, gay marriage is exactly that. But I've always argued that gay marriage is exactly like votes for women. Though remember I did say there were a few people who were already getting a bit disturbed about that, but they are a minority and probably lunatics. Um, but that gay marriage is like votes for women. Once it is the norm, no one will ever mention it again. It'll just be part of what people assume the world is made up of because it's such an unexceptional thing. If people who love each other want to get married, go for it. And I'm not one of those people who dislikes marriage. I've been married to the same bloke for 39 years. I know. Who can imagine I'd find one? <laughs> Once I did, I thought, better hang on to him. Um, so I understand completely and I do think it is a danger, but... You won't let it happen, not for long. You'll fight back, as we fight back, as we all fight back when there is an injustice. Because really, we're lucky. I sometimes think this about being a woman or a gay man or whatever. We have causes that are bigger than ourselves. That's a wonderful thing to have. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, hi, yeah, Jane. My name's my name's Chong. So you spoke very convincingly about liberalism and the importance of thinking for ourselves and you know, what we do is our own business. But we've also seen that and for the past 30 or 40 years, the rise of individualism. And especially at this, um, at Vodi, there's um, talks about narcissism and depression. So I was wondering, um, do you think you know, this, this rise of uh, problems along with this exaltation of the self, is that just because of you know, its linkage with um, neoliberalism or capitalism, you know, the economic, economic dimension, or do you think there's something inherent to liberalism itself that might be problematic? Well, I think there's all sorts of liberalism, like there's all sorts of everything else. The sort of liberal view I'm talking about is much more about each person's individual right to decide the shape of their own life and to take the consequences for their own decisions. The sort of neoliberalism is actually not about each person taking... Often, neo, economic neoliberals will be the very people who are absolutely opposed to gay marriage or to a woman's right to choose. A real liberal is not. 
opposed to those things. So there's a real conflation of, I'm in favour of individuality when it benefits my bottom line, but I'm against it as soon as it offends my feeling of being in control of my religious beliefs. Well, that means you're not a liberal, you're an authoritarian who's exploiting people. Um, so I think, but I think with everything, there is no magic philosophy which is without flaw and which can be applied in every circumstance and it will always work out well. I think that everything is muddy. Everything has to be judged on its merits and case by case. And you have to make decisions about when a person has absolutely every right to choose for themselves and when actually it is for the greater good that we work as a community. I have a great belief about community, that's public education is all about, the whole community taking responsibility for the education of every child, not just their own. See, private education is about parents taking responsibility for the education of their own child and the devil take the rest. Public education is about every child deserving a good education. So you have to actually, you move these philosophies in and out and you need to think about why you're doing it. I would never prescribe a philosophy and say, that's the way to go on every single issue. Thank you for your questions, very good one. Yes, hi Jane, and thanks for your dangerous ideas. Um, look, I'm, I'm curious, I, I think it was a couple of weeks ago in the Sunday Life magazine, I was reading through and I came across a great article um, by a feminist who said, you know, come on women, let's, let's step up to the success plate and do the best we can. And at the very end of, the, in the very last paragraph, she said something about um, uh, her still embracing the traditional feminine principles at home. So I'm wondering if you could talk to this because I'm doing some research through Sydney University as part of the uh, Gender and Cultural Studies about women in leadership. And I'm really interested in this, um, the dichotomy between women stepping up to success and that being seen as almost moving in on the masculine territory as compared to the home environment and the feminine and the desirability, the perceived desirability around being feminine for a man. So maybe you could comment on that, please. Oh, I do love a feminine man, particularly with a vacuum cleaner in his hand. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's a placatory behaviour. I think this, this, this backing away from the full tilt, I, I demand to take my place at the public table, I demand to be allowed to develop my potential to its fullest account, I demand to be able to say what I think, is terrifying to a lot of women, particularly those who are brought up to think that was not their right. And, to th and you remember the likability thing? She's got that idea in her head that if she is too upfront, too assertive, she won't be liked. So at the very end of the article, she puts in a little plea for you to still like her. I still love baking. <laughs> I really couldn't give a shit if you love baking. Go ahead, bake till your heart's content. But it's not a gendered thing, baking. You know, anyone can do it. Um, I love the way we talk about men as being really much better than women at machines, but somehow when it's a washing machine or an iron, they lose all ability. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, but I think it is, again, that, that trying to do the bargaining where if I'm a success, will you still like me? And hence you hear a lot of um, very successful women, actresses and, you know, film stars and young pop stars doing the, um, oh, yeah, I believe in equality, but I'm not a feminist. And that is the fear 
of being uh, not liked. And the more successful a woman gets, in a way, the scarier it is for her to claim feminism because she already knows she's challenging her likability just by doing well. So you can see, that's why I don't condemn women for doing these things because that, you know, we've put them in this hideous situation and they're doing the best they can. It's a terribly scary thing to say, I'm going to step up and say and be a success and I don't care if you like me or not. That's hard. It's why older women are better at it because they know you don't like them much anyway. <laughs> right, we're going to take... <laughs> we're going to take... Uh, Two in a row now, these will be the last two. So up here, upstairs, and then the gentleman down here, and then we'll get final comments and we'll start to wrap up. So yes. Hello, my name is Gillian. I'm the brave woman from upstairs. Um, there's been a lot of writing and commentary recently about what seems to be an emerging worldwide, pro well, problem in advanced economies, and that is the problem of inequality, which is really getting worse mm -hmm. and yet uh, the evidence seems to be that it actually uh, is a negative in terms of improving economic growth. Now, obviously, your educational ideas would address part of that, but I'm wondering, and your feminist ones, but what are the dangerous ideas you might have about addressing that particular problem? Okay, so hold that. Don't answer yet. Mm -hmm. Dangerous ideas to address inequality, yes? I just wanted to talk about, uh, take issue with the uh, education funding. Like, I was educated at a synagogue, Catholic nuns, Catholic Christian brothers, and a rural public school, so that's pretty good uh, breadth. Um, I 100% agree that public funding should be increased. There's, there's, there's only upside for that. But where that money comes from is an interesting topic. It can come from the roads budget, the police budget, the defence budget. It can come from a lot of budgets. You particularly picked up private schools. I'm pretty sure the funding... Uh, the subsidy actually works in reverse. So that if, you, if tomorrow we removed all funding for private school kids, um, what will happen is the cost of private education would go up and a percentage of those people would move across to the public sector. And that'd be great. But the mathematics and the economics doesn't work because the amount of money the government spends on a private school kid is less than it spends those, in the public system. Those figures are about to be comprehensively challenged, interestingly enough, and I can't let that work out early, but there's real work being done to say that that's not true, which is interesting. I don't think it matters. We shouldn't be deciding to have an education system because this is cheaper. We should be having deciding to have an education system because we want to close the inequality and the gaps between those children who have real opportunity to do better, in fact, too much bloody opportunity, and kids who don't have any. What we have at the moment is a publicly funded arms race where schools, particularly those charging very high fees, they don't, it has no effect on their fees. Their fees go up by something like five times the rate of inflation every year. So, hang on, hang on, let me finish. So. It has no effect on their fees. What they basically are now doing is having to offer ever more luxurious fac uh, facilities to compete to attract the children of the small number of well-heeled who can afford those schools. That's what wrong. what you call a private school, though. If you think of King's, and that's what you I think, think of as a private school. I think of any school that charges Most a fee. <laughs> private schools are suburban Catholic schools. They look, they're fine. They're nice schools, but they exclude. They exclude. We know the bishops have even said 
Our schools no longer educate the children of the poor. They educate the middle class. We know that the poorest kids are disproportionately in public education. We have developed a class system via our education system. I don't care if it's more expensive. It's incredibly important. Otherwise, all we can do with our current system is increase the gaps between those who have opportunity and those who have none. And I, I can't see any economic justification. I see no justification at all. We must address those, those children who may need huge amounts of money spent on them. At the moment, we are spending far too much money on kids who don't need it and not nearly enough on kids who okay, need it. OK, now I'm going to let you... You might pick that up later on. Have you got one last ultra-dangerous idea about inequality or one that you just want to have because you've got no time left? Look, <laughs> OK, the ultra-dangerous idea about inequality goes back to education. One of the things I do not like about the private school system and about the way our public school system is also starting to develop is that we are putting like with like. I do not like that we have girls with girls, boys with boys, smart kids with smart kids, Catholic kids with Catholic kids, Jewish kids with Jewish kids, Muslim kids with Muslim kids, poor kids with poor kids, stupid kids with stupid kids, academically gifted kids with academically gifted kids. What we are doing is we are creating winners and losers amongst our children. We are deciding who we will give chances to and who we won't. And I don't like it. I would like to see us mix our kids up. Okay, I let's... would like to see the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the girl and the boy, the Catholic and the Jew and the atheist all going to school together. Okay. So. <laughs> Just pause clapping for a second. Uh, which is just for me to say, can you join with me in thanking Jane Carroll? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.